Hey, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we jump into the episode, Lynn and I wanted to make sure you were aware of a unique opportunity. That's right, Serene. Right now, Northern is offering a $50 Amazon gift card to everyone who applies and is accepted for the upcoming fall quarter. That's awesome. You know, I've been at seminary for a couple of years now, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed is the opportunity to be part of Northern Live. Uh, When I first started at Northern, I didn't have many local seminary opportunities, and Northern Live gave me the ability to be live over Zoom for uh, the teaching that takes place so I could actually interact with my professors and the other students in my cohort. And so that's been a wonderful part of being a student at Northern. Lynn, why do you think our listeners should think about Northern Seminary for their seminary education? Well, I think Northern really cares about the world and sees others through gospel lens. There's a commitment to gospel truth as evangelicals but compassionate action, which is also historically evangelical, um, this full and joyful flourishing that we want all of our students to enjoy. Biblical and theological studies, not for their own sake, but to make the world a better place in Jesus' name. That's what Northern is about. Mm, I love that. So listeners, if you want to be a part of Northern's goal to make the world a better place in Jesus name, you can take advantage of this unique chance. And you can um, have an opportunity to get a $50 Amazon gift card after getting accepted for the fall quarter. So go ahead over to seminary.edu slash AJ apply to schedule some time with a member of our admission team, or you can start your application today. So again, that's seminary.edu slash A-J-A-P-P-L-Y. Now, sit back and get ready for today's episode. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is talking with Dr. Rebecca Eklund. Rebecca is Associate Professor of Theology at Loyola University, Maryland in Baltimore, where she teaches scripture, theology, and ethics. Rebecca is ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church, and she is the author of several books, including Jesus Wept, The Significance of Jesus' Laments in the New Testament, Practicing Lament, A Practical and Accessible Guide to Lament, and her most recent one published this year titled The Beatitudes Through the Ages. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks so much for joining us here on Alabaster Jar. Hi, Lynn. It is such a pleasure and honor for me to be with you today. I'm really excited. Oh, me too. Um, I just love, I love your work. You ask such interesting probing questions that always circle back to our life with God. I just Mm -hmm. love that. I'd love to dive into your new book, Beatitudes Through the Ages. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about what this book does? What what's the what what did you study in this book? Sure. Well, I I became really interested in how the beatitudes have been read throughout all of history essentially throughout all of church history and I I became interested in that partially because of my work on lament which that which the introduction mentioned and I became really interested in blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And what became interesting to me is who are the mourning? 
what kind of weeping is blessed and why. And when I began to kind of look back through history to see how people have understood that, I was really surprised at what I found. And that led me to into a deeper dive into all the Beatitudes just to see how have they functioned? How have people understood them? They have been so influential. I, they're really one of the most influential texts in, in Christian history. So what I did in the book is just decided to try to investigate from the very beginning all the way through the present, how have people wrestled with these texts? How have they applied them? How have they tried to embody them in their own lives? So that that's what that's what it is. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into specifics maybe in a minute, but another kind of 30,000 foot question. You make this uh, statement, the Beatitudes contain the whole gospel. Mm. And I was so, and you go on to explain that. Um, I just found that, fascinating and intriguing. What led you to say that the Beatitudes contain the whole gospel? Mm, that's a great question. It's something I had never thought of before, actually, but it's something that I encountered in several of the things I read. In fact, many of the earliest Christian writers who comment on the Beatitudes seem to take it for granted that the, the Sermon on the Mount captures a summary of Jesus' teaching and that the Beatitudes capture a summary of the sermon. And so um, in a sense, the Beatitudes are seen as the very core, the very heart, um, a kind of compressed summary of the, the whole of Jesus's teaching and therefore in a sense, the whole of the Christian life. And I was really captivated by that idea. But like I said in the book, as I read my way through history and read my way through how people have understood the Beatitudes, that became quite true to me because I, I ended up kind of reading about everything, you know, salvation, atonement theory, prayer, the nature of grace. Um, and so it seemed to me that it was something I, I encountered as I read and that became true for me as I, as I worked my way through the book. Well, that, and I just found it fascinating myself to kind of think along those lines. I study more uh, the Pauline epistles rather than the gospels. And so we tend to think, the gospel, as the way Paul might write it, is, is a propositional truth, mm. right? It's just a statement out there, justification by faith, or Paul's line, by grace you are saved through faith, it's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. You know, that there's like these nuggets of um, condensed gospel, if you will. Um, whereas with the Beatitudes, uh, it's almost like poetry, to mm. me, you know, there's there's a yeah, it, it just has a to say it in non-theological language, there's a different vibe. <laughs> yeah. So um how how has your understanding of the the whole gospel, if the Beatitudes contain the whole gospel, then what is the whole gospel in mm. your mind? Mm. Oh, that is such a good question. And I like I like the comparison you're making to Paul and more kind of propositional truths, because I think it's true that we often when we think of what is the gospel, it's easier to frame it as, well, Jesus, Jesus died for our sins or um, justification by by um, God's grace through faith alone or something like that. And the Beatitudes, I came to think of them more in a sense, almost as par parables, because they're I, to me, they, they became more and more sayings that 
seem simple on the surface, but they force you to dive deeper into them. And once you start to dive into them and you start to really uncover, well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Um, how does that relate to being poor? How does that relate to um, actual material poverty? Um, what does it mean to be meek? Um, what does it mean to be gentle? Why is that part of the Christian life? Um, so in a sense, I suppose you can put the, the Beatitudes more in the bucket of ethics than of, of theology. But to me, those lines are very blurry, especially as you start to kind of think through what the Beatitudes are actually trying to do. Of course, in one way, they're telling you how to live. But in another sense, I think they're also describing the character of the kingdom of God and what a citizen of that kingdom looks like. And that to me is part of the gospel. Um, the gospel is an invitation into a way of life and into a relationship. And I think the Beatitudes function very much as an invitation into that way of life and into that relationship. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask a very unfair question, sort of like, <laughs> who's your favorite child? Oh, no. I would love to know what your favorite Beatitude is. <gasps> that is an unfair question. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> My favorite Beatitude. Oh, that is, that's good. Um, hmm. Favorite. I think I would have to, um, with apologies to my other seven children, <laughs> I, I might have to pick Blessed Are the Meek, hmm. only because that one held so many surprises for me. Um, it was just so delightful, both, both parts of the Beatitudes. So on the Blessed Are the Meek part, meekness, in terms of how people have understood it throughout history, was not at all what I thought it was. So, you know, meekness for the vast majority of Christian history was understood as the ability to properly exercise and restrain anger. And that kind of blew me away because I'd always thought of meekness as timidity or passivity or, you know, and people just assume that it instead it is a, it's the virtue of how to rightly use anger. Not that you never feel angry, but you feel angry at the right things in the right amount for the right length of time. And you can, you can do anger without harming people, <laughs> um, without losing your temper, without destroying people. So it becomes tied into the prohibition against taking revenge and all of these things. That just kind of blew me away. I was really surprised by that. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's fascinating. It makes so much more sense than meek, like meek is a doormat as a, yeah. what is it, as a church mouse or as a doormat. Right, you know, exactly. We, there's nothing, we don't, meek doesn't have a good a sense. No. Yeah. And it, it helps to make sense, I think, of why Jesus describes himself as meek, right? Because if you think about how the word meek is used elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, it's applied to Jesus. He describes himself as meek. And then um, in the passage in the triumphal entry, the king comes to you meek um, and riding on a donkey. Now, the, the English translations tend to obscure that connection because they sometimes will choose a different word, humble or gentle. But it's really the same, the same Greek word. The other surprise for me um, was in the second half of the Beatitude, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, the interpretations of what the earth is that is inherited were really wild. You know, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, the inheritance of the resurrection body. Um, so lots of really creative interpretations there, which I which I had fun with. Wow. Oh, that is so interesting. Well, um, that you carry on a careful 
study of scripture in in the Beatitudes, but I I also wanted to get at your book Jesus Wept, mm. where you focus a little bit more on just the idea of lament. And as you mentioned in the Beatitudes, there is the blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, but I, in the in the book Jesus Wept, you define lament, and you note that it's not often a term that is associated with the, the New Testament. Can you kind of un give us your definition of lament and then tell us how it might be found in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Mm, yeah, that, that's a great question. So uh, what got me into looking for lament in the New Testament initially was exactly the reason that you just stated. It didn't Lament doesn't seem to be a part of the New Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. It's so obvious, right? It's it's in the, it's everywhere in the Psalms, Lamentations, Job. Um, but is it in the New Testament? And when I went looking for it, I I found in fact it is there. It's there in a kind of different form. But for me, I think the the most basic definition of lament is just a cry for help to God in the midst of distress. Um, and it's a cry for help that that typically makes a request or a demand of God to act or hear or be present in the midst of that distress. So it's it's very much a a prayer or, or it takes place within that that relationship with God. You invoke that relationship. And where I think you you find it the most in the New Testament is in the prayers of Jesus. You see Jesus lamenting in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see Jesus using lament language and quoting from the Psalms um, on the cross as he is dying. But I think you also see lament language in Paul in Romans 8. You get little glimpses of it. Um, and certainly in Revelation, you also see um, some very um, overt lament language. How long until you avenge our blood on the earth? So I think for me in the New Testament, lament becomes part of the time in between the times, you know, the, the longing for the ways the kingdom has not yet fully come, even though it has begun to arrive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of longing and crying out to crying out to God feels like just a human condition. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. So you make the, the comment, and I just loved this, um, that Jesus embodies lament or enacts lament mm -hmm. um yeah what what i'd never thought of jesus that way and i do want to in in a little bit get to um just how your idea or understanding of god was shaped as you did this study but when you talk about jesus embodying lament what what does that mean mm -hmm. well one of the things that I that I ended up looking at was, in a sense, Jesus on both the human side of the lament and, in a sense, on the divine side of the lament, right? So as a human being, Jesus laments to his father. He laments to God. He cries out from his own place of distress. But then you also see, in a sense, lament enacted in the life of Jesus, where he receives the cries of distress, he hears them and he answers. So people cry out to him for help and for healing in these kind of classic lament phrases in a way, you know, help me, I'm suffering, help me, I'm, my child is dying. Um, and Jesus, in a sense, steps into the divine role as the one who hears the cry of distress and answers it. And I'm 
I, I believe it was Gail O'Day and a few other scholars who kind of put me onto this way of thinking about lament as Jesus enacting it, but in a sense from the divine side of the equation, if you will. Oh, that's that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I was so excited uh, to read. Uh, I wanted to hear what you thought about Jesus and the raising of Lazarus hmm. in John 11 and that that classic verse that's so short, Jesus wept. Yeah. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about kind of what is going on there at the at the tomb and how you're understanding what Jesus is doing there, even relative to what he does in the rest of John's gospel or also in the uh, synoptic gospels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I um, that that little tiny phrase, Jesus wept, is so evocative, isn't it? Obviously, I thought it was evocative. I chose it as the title of my yes, book. Yes. But for me, one of the things that I see going on in that in that episode in John is Jesus participating in this very human form of grief. He's lost his friend, right? Um, I think you see very clearly in John's gospel, more than in the synoptic gospels, that Jesus has friends. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of Bethany are three of his closest friends, and his friend has died. And he weeps at the edge of the grave with this very, you know, this very human sense of loss, not only at the loss of his friend, I think, but just at the loss of death. Um, Karl Barth has this wonderful little snippet on the on the, the raising of Lazarus, where, you know, he kind of talks about Jesus saying no to death when he raises Lazarus, which I, which I, which I really love. So, but I think you also, um, you also see, in a sense, again, the kind of other side of lament, which is there's someone who hears the cries of lament. And Jesus, in a sense, is there to be the one not only to participate in the suffering and the loss and to taste death, as, as Hebrews has it, but also to be the one to say no to death and to hear those, those cries of pain and lament and to raise Lazarus back to new life. So I just see a lot going on in that passage about Jesus, again, kind of acting on both sides of the lament, the human, the very human side, but then also the, the divine side. Yes. Does yes. that make well, sense? I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, if people don't understand who Jesus is, fully human and fully divine, they're not really going to grasp the full impact of mm. what the raising of Lazarus is, is about. Yeah, you bring that out so beautifully. Mm, thank you. Yeah, and, and uh, you mentioned already that cry from the cross, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and, and you talk about how uh, Jesus might be referencing uh, the Psalms, Psalm 22, and, but you unpack that so well in, in the book, because I, I think, well, how do we, how do we know what Jesus uh, means there? What 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 is he trying to tell us mm. with that quote? Because I feel like at times people underinterpret it or maybe overinterpret yeah. it. So what what is what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So so I think there are kind of two opposite dangers or two opposite. I don't know. Um, uh, over interpretations to make. And I think on one side, 
you have people who want to go too quickly to the end of Psalm 22 and to, no, 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 this Psalm ends in victory. You know, um, the resurrection is coming. So I think they want to underplay the genuine sort of abandonment or forsakenness of those words, you know, and they want to insist, no, Jesus never really felt abandoned. Um, I think that's one danger. I think we want to sit with the the genuine sense of abandonment and forsakenness and loneliness and pain of those words. My God, why have you forsaken me? One of the um, most common forms of lament in the Old Testament is just a sense of God's abandonment, um, God's hiddenness, right? God hiding his face. And I think that, I think we want to dwell with that in those words of Jesus from the cross. But on the other hand, I think the other sort of trap or, or over-interpretation, if you will, is to say, um, Jesus, um, just felt such an utter sense of abandonment and, um, that was it. That's it. <laughs> so we never get to the rest of the Psalm. We never get to the resurrection or we never get to the sense of hopefulness that I think even the most desperate lament has a kind of element of hope because you're still directing your cry to God. Uh, my mentor at Duke, Alan Verhey, is, is someone who really helped me see that, that, even the most angry, desperate, um, bitter cry of lament is still directed to God, and and so it still operates, you know, within within that within that space, and therefore, you know, is still in a sense an act of hope, even if it's a very desperate, you know, um, little shred of hope. And and I think that's the other thing I would want to to sort of hang on to with that cry of lament. Um, it is the first verse of a psalm that in fact is threaded throughout the passion narrative. And we do get to this kind of victorious end, which you get with, of course, the, you know, the resurrection um, accounts in, in not in Mark, <laughs> but in, but in the other gospels. So that was oh, kind I, of a long answer, but. <laughs> no, 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 that's really good. And in fact, you talk about Jesus's passion. So his, um, you know, really from the time of his arrest through the cross, um, and then eventually we have Easter morning. But you talk about how, as the Gospels write that, they are, as you put it, narrative enactments of lament. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, just tease that out for us a little bit, at narrative enactment mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. lament. Right. Well, it, part, part of why I say that is because, again, to go back to Psalm 22, it's almost like Psalm 22 is being acted out in, in Jesus' passion, right? All these pieces, um, the, the, the onlookers who, who scoff at him, um, casting dice for the, for the clothes, um, uh, you know, the sense of abandonment and grief and loss and neighbors turning against him. And, you know, all of that is, is, as it, you know, Jesus is living that piece by piece through his through his passion. So I think one of the questions then is, well, when Jesus says, "My God, My God, if you've forsaken me," are we supposed to hear everything else in the Psalm? And I think, in a sense, the Gospel writers have seeded that for us by showing all these other pieces of the Psalm being acted out in in Jesus' life. He's living Psalm twenty two for us right before right before our eyes, in a sense. Why, why do you think it is that Christians might want to hurry through uh, Jesus's 
period of lament in this mm. kind of skip over good friday and and just hang out on resurrection mm. sunday yeah that's a good question i mean i think it's one of the things I've, I've thought about a lot as i've studied lament and i think there's there's certainly more than one reason right um uh, i think in, in at least some Christian traditions, I think there's anxiety about lament as expressing a lack of trust in God, that it that it's a form of doubt. And I think there are some Christian traditions that are very anxious about doubt, as 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 if doubt were a sin. And so, if lament gets you to a place of doubt, it is to be avoided at all costs, right? Um, I don't think doubt is a sin, and I talk about that a little bit in my practicing lament book. I think lament is the space where we wrestle with with even with doubts before God. Um, I, I also think that just in a very human sense, I think it's it's hard to sit with pain. <laughs> um, so that's another kind of just human reason. I think another um, possible reason is that this goes back to, uh, you know, your, your kind of initial observation that there doesn't seem to be as lament, as much lament in the New Testament. There's a lot of things in the New Testament about resurrection, hope and victory and Paul saying rejoice always. And I think that can push Christians sometimes to believe that the Christian life should be all rejoicing and joy and victory in Christ and resurrection power. And where does lament fit in that? It's not always obvious where lament or Good Friday or you know, grief should fit in that. Um, and like I said, I think it fits exactly in this space that we live in between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. You know, we're living in Holy Saturday in a way, I guess is one way to think about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I've done some work on the letter to the Philippians and mm. in that letter, there's a couple of great little lines that are often taken out of context. And uh, one that Paul uh, kind of champions for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Mm. And you just feel like he uh, he's so bold and not fearful of death and just ready to go. But in the next chapter, he talks about how his friend Epaphroditus, one of uh, the members of the Philippian church, almost died, mm. but the Lord healed him. And with that healing, Paul says that God spared him sorrow upon sorrow. And, and I think, yeah, that Paul can both be very confident that it, in Christ, that uh, all that he does for the Lord is not in vain and, and he will be welcomed um, as when the Lord brings him home as a faithful servant. All of that is true. But in the here and now, he would be really sad mm. if Epaphroditus was to have uh, died because uh, he'd miss him. Yeah, you know, exactly. And because he knows that that others would feel pain, um, yeah. and yeah. so I think, yeah, that we we want to skip over uh, that that reality. Even even in Paul, we don't want to hear him say that. Um, yeah. We uh, we just want to have that kind of boldness. Oh, I don't care what happens. You know? and it's <laughs> right, like, yeah. well, even Paul didn't mean it. Yeah, that way, I know. Yeah. Know? No, it's such a great example. I'm so glad you you brought that up because it made me think of another little verse in Paul, which I've always found very meaningful, which is in First Thessalonians. Um, so that you shall not um grieve without hope. And I've thought a lot about what it means to grieve with hope. Because I don't think Paul is instructing them not to grieve. 
you know, he's saying, of course, you're going to grieve, but I want you to be able to grieve with hope. So what does it mean to grieve with hope? Well, I think that's lament is a prayer that's designed, it seems to me, to grieve with hope. Yes. And I there was a great line at the end of your book in the New Testament. Lament is a practice for the now. Mm. And I think that's what you've been saying, right, is that that uh, that's lament is is a Oh, boy, I don't know if I should say it this way or not. And feel mm -hmm. free to disagree with me. No. But it's almost as though lament is a gift from God to us right now. Oh, to I be agree. able to share, yeah, share our sorrows, our confusions to the God who will hear. Mm -hmm. And as you so beautifully pointed out, Jesus acts on that in a loving way, not in a, oh, just go back to your corner, sit down and suck it up. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I completely, I, I completely agree that it's a gift and it's a gift for, for, you know, all of the things in our now that are painful and hard and challenging and what a gift that God gives us this prayer. And, you know, I think of Jesus in Hebrews, you know, the high priest who is, he's waiting, you know, eagerly to hear us, you know, come with our sufferings and um, he's ready with mercy. He's ready with grace, not with, you people just pull it together, you know, right, right, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, ready with grace. Um, and I think that's what lament is for. Right, right. So this was part of your dissertation work, which meant that you uh, you experienced grief and uh, struggle <laughs> in, getting, <laughs> in getting that uh, done. But I imagine also your life continued uh, mm -hmm. with that as um, um has there been a moment in your life or maybe in a friend's life, I, I don't need, mean to pry, but mm -hmm. just more, can you tell us when lament was really a practice that you relied on or, or as I say, a family or a friend mm. um, that, uh, where you said, yeah, this is a practice for the now and, and you, and you lived it? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you 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 mentioned the, the time during the writing of my dissertation. Obviously, being in grad school is, is a time, yes. of, you know, some <laughs> suffering. But um, more seriously, you know, during the course of my time at Duke, when I was a grad student, um, I lost my mother, um, I lost my grandfather, um, and um, I was diagnosed with, you know, a, a medical condition that I, I still get to live with. And then shortly after I graduated, when I was just preparing the book for publication um, in, a, in a series, um, my mentor, my advisor, Ellen Verhey died. And all of those things made lament not only an academic exercise for me, but something that I relied on in my own life. Um, because all of those things were causes of deep you know, grief for me. And I was so grateful that I had lament as, because that was, in, you know, some days that was the only way I could pray was, was through lament. And it was, like you said, it was a gift and it was a gift to me personally during those times for sure. Yes. Yes. I know the, the, uh, Paul saying at times we just don't have words. This is in Romans, you know, where we yeah. just don't have words, but the Holy spirit prays, you know, kind of on our behalf. There are times when our emotions, especially with sorrow, um, just leave us in uh, speechless in, mm -hmm. in pain. And um, yeah, I think that's a word for now. Uh, uh, it's, it's the now time when we are going to have, uh, have these times when it's, it's, the, it's the lament psalm 
um, or it's the Holy Spirit within us that mm -hmm. is praying those those words. And what's so beautiful, what you brought out so wonderfully in, in uh, your writing is we have a God who hears and not just hears, but reaches out in love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It also, I have to say, gave me great comfort to to know that Jesus also wept over the loss of a friend, of a loved one, you know, and that, um, that, that you know, God, in a sense, could feel it in his bones, you know, literally, you know, um, as and that, that also gave me comfort during those times. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, I am so glad that you spent some time with us uh, today in the Alabaster Jar and your work. I so highly recommend it uh, to our listeners. Beatitudes Through the Ages is your new book. Uh, Practicing Lament has been out for a couple of years, and it's uh, a very accessible work for readers who want to delve in just a little bit more to this whole process of of lament. So thanks again so much. I really appreciate you taking the time, Rebecca. Oh, thank you so much, Lynn. This was such a pleasure. It was really fun to get to talk to you. So thank you for inviting me to be on your pod. You've been listening to another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Rebecca Eklund, please share it with your friends and check out her works on the Beatitudes and Lament, which we will link in the description to this episode. And we hope that you'll join us right back here again next week for another conversation on issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry.